0: بسم الله الرحمن Allah, <laughs> الله Allah, ولا the the Sayyidina Muhammad. Allahumma aghlisna min zulmatiba wa akrimna bi nurika Allahumma aftah alayna abwaaba rahmatika wa alayna wa fatah 'alayna wa anzil 'alayna min rahmatika Alhamdulillah we managed to talk about the literal and technical meaning of akhlaq and then we talked about the science of akhlaq its subject matter and now we want to continue with the significance of the science of akhlaq. although in the first session we talked about it, but we took a little bit more. And then we will talk about different types of studies of akhlaq or different types of ethical studies. You know, one way of dividing, sciences in order to be able to better know them. Because you know we divide and classify things in order to help us to understand them better. One way is that uh, scholars divide the sciences into two types of sciences. Some sciences are the sciences that are studied for their own sake. They themselves are important for us because the subject matter of those sciences are by themselves important for us. But some sciences, we study them for the sake of other sciences. These are called Ulume Ali. Ali with Hamza, not with ain. Ali comes from Ala. Ala means instrument, a tool, a means. These are like instruments which help us for understanding other sciences. For example, why do we study logic? We don't study logic for the sake of logic. We study logic for the sake of being able to understand how to make proper argument, how to define things properly, so that then when we go into philosophy, into theology, then we don't make mistakes. Or for example, you know. we study you know, and morphology, syntax, in order to understand the text. Otherwise, we don't have interest in them as such. For us, they are like tools that we use them later when we come to Islamic texts. But is not a science that you learn for the sake of another science. Ilm akhlaq is something which has its own intrinsic value, its own essential value. And actually, it's one of the most important sciences. Because, as we said, it helps us in understanding what actions are good actions so that we do them, what actions are bad actions so that we avoid them, what qualities are of a good quality, so that we acquire them, and what qualities are bad qualities, so that we remove them, or we defend ourselves against them. So this science has intrinsic value or essential value. <coughs> there is a beautiful saying text uh, from Allama Sharani. Allama shaarani was a scholar, and he was in Tehran, and he was a teacher of Ayatollah Hassan Zadeh Amuli. He was very good in fiqh, in theology, in philosophy. He has a commentary on usul al kafi In his commentary on usul al kafi volume 8, page hundred, 289, volume 8, page 289, he says something which shows that in his age, he found that people don't show enough attention to akhlaq. So he's very sad. But I think if he was today, instead of being sad, he was crying. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he says, ajab, اَنَّ الْنَاسِ تَرَكُوا إِلْمَ الْأَخْلَاقِ he says, it's surprising, it's shocking that people have left aside the science of akhlaq and acting according to the science of akhlaq and what it requires. And they have just focused. They have just focused and concentrated on the aman zahira the rituals, or you know the actions, which are the actions performed by organs of body. So instead of being concerned about <coughs> their heart and the quality of the heart, more they are more concerned about. The actions of body. Vadannu. And they believed, they thought, in Hisara al Ukhrabiya fiha, they thought eternal happiness can be achieved just by performing some actions. You make wuzu, prayer, hajj, uh, zakat, some actions, they thought this is enough. They are not concentrating, they are not doing their best, they are not concerned with purification of the soul from what destroys the soul, what destroys the soul, one tense. ما النجاسة and أثوابهم. one tenth of attention that they have to make sure that their body is clean, their you know dress is clean, there is no nejasa. even ten percent one tenth means ten percent. even ten percent of their attention doesn't go to the cleanliness of the heart. this is about pious people, about you know religious people. those who are not religious they don't bother about najasa or taharaq. but even religious people, unfortunately, sometimes they become too much focused on these aspects, which are very important by themselves. But this is just the beginning. We should have clean body. We should have clean dress. Why? So that purity and cleanness of the heart and soul can be achieved. Not just, you know, to have, you know, clean dress and, you know, clean body physically. So he says, they don't pay attention to the purification of the soul. One-tenth of their attention to removing nejasa dirt, from their dress. And this is one of the misguiding mistakes. Illusions. This ayah is very special. You know, this is the dua of Prophet Ibrahim. <laughs> this is part of the dua of Ibrahim because he said, لَا يَوْمَ he said, O oh Allah, please do not forsake me, do not abandon me, do not disgrace me, do not humiliate me. On the day of resurrection, the day that neither children nor money can help, can benefit. لَا يَنْفَعُ Except... The one who comes with pure heart we need pure heart this is what can help us pure heart and interestingly Allah says Ibrahim had achieved this elsewhere Allah says so Ibrahim achieved this purity of heart so Allah says look Allah says we should Achieve pure heart. Not only clean body and clean dress. وقال Allah also said لَن ينال الله ولا ولكن يناله التقوى منكم. When Allah says you should do ghorbani, you should do sacrifice. Neither the flesh nor the blood reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah has no interest in the flesh of this, you know, cow or sheep, or in the blood. It's only your piety that can reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when Allah says, do qurbani, it's to purify yourself, to detach yourself from dunya. That is the most important. وَقَالَ تَعَالَى وَنَفْسٍ وَمَا سَوَّاهَا فَأَلْحَمْهَا فُجُورَهَا وَتَقْوَاهَا قَدْ أَفْلَحَ مَنْ زَكَّهَا وَقَدْ خَابَ مَنْ دَسَّهَا Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surat after swearing 11 times then he says the one who purifies his soul has been successful has achieved you know, salvation at أَفْلَحَ is successful, is prosperous. But the one who doesn't purify his soul, who lives without attention, will be not successful, will not reach the end. And he says the reason why people show I mean religious people. Those who are not religious, we don't talk about them. They have obvious problems. We are talking about religious people. So, religious people, sometimes you see, they put all their attention on just fiqh. Fiqh, very important. Fiqh is very, very important. No one should, you know, misunderstand. He was himself a mushrah, a faqih. But what we are saying is that fiqh is not end of the story. Fiqh is part of what we need to do. The issues discussed in fiqh are very close to perceptions. Something that you see, you touch, you smell, you eat, you drink, these are the issues that we discuss in fiqh. It's easier to understand. It catches our attention more easily than talking about Selfishness, greediness, you know, these are much more abstract. The issues discussed in fiqh are closer to understanding and closer to practice. Also when we say that, for example, imam of jama'ah should be adil, we talk about committing uh, no sin. So this is, again... Issue. But this doesn't mean that akhlaq is less important. So, fiqh is more easily understood, is sooner understood, but akhlaq is not less important. So, akhlaq is a science which is very, very important because it deals with our qualities of the heart. Qualities of the soul, and these are the things that would define our happiness. Actions are very important, but actions are affecting us to some extent. The main thing is aqidah and akhlaq. Actions are very important, but the impact of akhlaq. On our happiness is, in general, as I said, much more than actions. If you have a very good trait of character, for example, if you are a generous person, this has great impact on your relation with Allah, on your sa'adah. Even, we said, you know, like someone like Hatem who was a pagan, who was a mushrik, but because he was generous, Rasulullah treated his daughter, was taken as a captive with maximum respect, released her and also according to our hadith, Allah will not punish hatamatai because he was generous. So generosity, good-naturedness, uh, kindness, helpfulness, trustworthiness, loyalty, these are very important qualities. Or, on the other hand, if someone has all the good actions but bad akhlaq, he would suffer. the story of that companion of the prophet that i think we mentioned uh, in one of the sessions that how rasulullah himself himself took part in his funeral you know preparing the grave saying prayer on his body but when the mother said you know oh you are you know in a very good situation because of this, Rasulullah said, no, he's going to suffer in his grave because he had bad temper. So akhlaq is very, very important. Again, I'm saying, we are not underestimating the role of fiqh, but we are saying that fiqh is very, very important, even more important than what you can imagine, but still akhlaq is more important, you know? Sometimes people cannot understand these comparisons properly. For example, in our hadith, it is said that al To backbite is worse than adultery. This doesn't mean that adultery is not, you know, very bad. It means that adultery is very, 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 very bad, but ghibah is still worse. But unfortunately, you know is something that sometimes you see it's not very uncommon in any case so this is about the significance of akhlaq because we discussed this also in the first session so I think this is enough now we have inshallah hopefully a clear understanding about the definition of akhlaq a science which studies voluntary actions and those qualities that can be either acquired voluntarily or stopped and removed voluntarily, and then the subject matter and significance. Now, I want to mention different types of ethical studies, and then, inshallah, I will explain what we are going to study in this, inshallah, semester. There are three types of ethical studies. If you perhaps take any book, textbook on moral philosophy or philosophical ethics, you know, you see that they mention there are two types of ethical stuff. One is descriptive ethics. What is descriptive ethics? Descriptive ethics is to study morals or value system of a person or a tribe or a group or a community or a religion but without making any judgment you are just studying to find out what is the moral value of this person or what are the values of this group, this group of people. For example, a person, maybe a historian, studies the life of Hitler to find out what was his value system, which values were very important for him, which values were not important for him. This person, as a historian, has no Responsibility of judging. He's not to judge whether Hitler was a good person or bad person. As a historian, you should just make sure that you present an objective report. Yeah? And survey. You can give a report about the person that you love, or you can give a report of the person that you don't like, But your report must be real, must be true, must be objective. Okay? You can talk about Chang'e, the Mongol, you can talk about Hitler, you can talk about Saddam, but as a historian, you are just giving a report. This is why it is called descriptive. It means that you just describe. Okay? Or, for example, maybe you are interested in studying. Morality of Eskimos. You go to the pole and try to live with them, try to study them, ask them, inquire, questionnaire, I don't know, living with them, observing, and then you try to give a proper report of what they believe, what they do, what they think. You are not judging. Okay? Or even when it comes, for example, to religions. sometimes you want to understand what is the value system of jews or christians or hindus or buddhists maybe you are yourself a member of that faith someone who adheres to that faith. maybe you are not you are just trying to understand and present a, a you know kind of a kind of accurate account so this is called descriptive Ethics. Is it clear? So this is the job of mostly historians or anthropologists or people who study religions but not philosophers of religion. Those who just study religions. The second type of ethical study is called normative ethics normative it comes from norm they study norms but not just by describing Uh, you know the difference between normal and normative both come from norm but they are different normal is something which complies with the norms But normative means to give the norm, to give the norm. So there is an element of evaluation. There's an element of judgment. So in normative ethics, you are not just trying to understand and give an accurate report. In normative ethics, you try to take a position, for example, Is telling truth morally necessary or not? You are not just reporting who who believes it is necessary, who doesn't believe. You want to take stance. So here, you have to have your own theory. You have to have your own basis. So you say, I believe that telling truth, for example, is necessary unless it leads to a greater harm. harm which is greater than telling the lie so in normative ethics you should have a theory that can explain what is good what is bad what is right what is wrong you have to be able to argue for this You have to be able to defend your position. Then, there is a third type of ethical studies. And that is called meta-ethics. Or some people call it analytic ethics. Meta-ethics or analytic ethics. And this is when you go to deeper layers of ethics. For example, here, you are not talking about what makes an action good or bad, what makes an action right or wrong. No, you go to a more fundamental level. You discuss what does good and bad mean. What does right and wrong mean? How do we come to such concepts? And what is the relation between them? Is there any relation between is and ought? It's a big issue in moral philosophy. Is there any relation between is and ought? So can we draw a normative judgment from a fact? means a fact. Out means a normative statement. So can we say, because this is the reality, then we are to do this, or we cannot say this, OK? So in meta ethics, they call it meta, because meta means beyond. We are going beyond ordinary questions. We are going to very philosophical questions. What are these terms? How our mind conceptualize these terms? What is the relation between them? How can we come to a moral knowledge? Is morality something which is relative or it's not relative? There are many, many issues that we discuss in metaethics. I hope it's clear why we call it metaethics, because, as I said, this is not something that, in the first place, you deal with. This is for the people who have been involved in ethical studies, and now more fundamental questions come up for them. The first study, which was descriptive ethics, as we said, was not philosophical, was not intellectual. It's a matter of history or anthropology or text-based studies. The second and the third are philosophical, are intellectual. So according to some ethicists, when they say moral philosophy or philosophical ethics, they refer to the second and the third. And some, they only refer to the third when they say moral philosophy or philosophical ethics. But I believe the first is better, because both normative ethics and philosophical ethics are philosophical, because the way to argue is to go for rational arguments. You cannot say, I believe that honesty is good, because of this text in my religion. Because if you have this approach, then this is descriptive. Okay? Uh, I hope you make the distinction between these two types of dis- decision. You know, some for example, sometimes you want to understand whether a certain religion believes in slavery or not do they think that slavery is good or bad so what is the way to come to a proper answer to this question if you want to understand whether this particular religion is in favor of slavery or not what should you do you have to go to the text to their sacred text to their scripture you have to refer to their Interpretation of those texts and find out whether those texts imply that a slavery is good or they imply that the slavery is bad. Okay? To understand Islamic position, Christian position, Jewish position, Hindu position about an issue, you cannot argue rationally. You can just go to their sources, and find out what do they believe. But if you want to make a judgment whether slavery is good or not, and you argue philosophically for it, then this would be moral philosophy. This is not religious ethics. This is moral philosophy. Of course, we Muslims, especially the followers of Ahlul Bayt Ali Musalam, because we believe that reason or intellect is a hujja of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. So for us, even a rational discourse is religious. So if I want to understand Islamic position about something. I can go back to the text. I can also see if there can be a decisive, decisive, not, you know, you're guessing, a decisive rational judgment. If someone can rationally prove that something is wrong, definitely Islam also says this is wrong. You don't need to bother and go and uh, check the text. If we can establish Okay, again, I'm saying not by guessing and, you know, I think this. you know, uh, we respect that you think, but <laughs> thinking is not giving us Islamic position. Islamic position can be understood either from Quran and Hadith with a proper methodology, or if there is Burhan, which means decisive, rational argument, demonstration. If you can demonstrate that something is rational, right or wrong, then again this is Islamic. Because we have this rule of al mulazama. Qa'idatul mulazama. Mulazama means correlation or co implication. kullama hakama bihil aql, hakama bihil shar'a. Wa kullama hakama bihil whatever judgment is made by reason the same is made by religion whatever is made by religion is made by reason if you see there is a contradiction between religion and rational judgment if you see there is contradiction then there must be a problem here because the real religious position and the real rational position can never contradict each other. Because If it seems that there is a contradiction between aql and naagl, between revelation and reason, there must be a problem. We should find out the problem. Either the problem is that we haven't understood the position of religion properly. We made mistake. Or we have not understood the requirement of reason. We made mistake there. At least in one side we have made mistake. Sometimes maybe in both sides we have made mistake. Okay? So, for us, Philosophical ethics is Islamic, but for some religions, it's not, because they don't believe in intellectual discourse in religion. Even for some schools of Islam, they don't have any interest in philosophy. They think philosophy is something which is foreign, which is a stranger. And you have to be careful not to let them invade our mind the philosophers are like invaders according to some people i think i told you once that i had a discussion with a brother from and you know when i asked him first you know what is your methodology in discussion you know so on and so forth, then he said you are using aql, <laughs> as if i am drinking alcohol You you are using Aql. Okay, what what is wrong with that? We should use Aql. Allah says in the Quran, (laughs) But for this person, using Aql was a very bad thing. Why are you using Aql? So, even inside Islam, we have some people who think like this. But in the school of Ahlul Bayt, we are very relaxed. We have no worry about Aql. Indeed, we believe Ahl is Hujjah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he's not going to misguide us. The only way to be misguided is when you are not trained properly. This is the problem that we have. Some people, they have studied books. They have learned terminology. They can quote from this source or that source. A lay person can easily be deceived. Oh, this person is very learned he quotes this he quotes that different books page numbers so if he quotes 10 you know for example sources some people say oh he is a great man he cannot make mistake but yes you can make mistake you can study 1000 books and still make mistake because it's not a matter of how many books you have read it's a matter of how many books you have understood so there are people who have studied a lot but they haven't understood so, if a person makes a rational criticism of religion or Sharia, it's because they have not understood Sharia or they have not understood reason or maybe they have not understood both of them. Otherwise, they can never contradict each other. So, we have descriptive ethics, we have normative ethics, we have Metaethics or analytic ethics when you say moral philosophy or philosophical ethics it refers to the second and the third and when it comes to islamic ethics you can have one of the two options either you try to just give a descriptive report about what islam says about different values Good actions, bad actions, good and noble traits of character, and bad and vicious traits of character. So sometimes you get into this in a descriptive way. You quote Quran, you quote Hadith to establish what is Islamic view about this. But sometimes you embark on an intellectual journey, which is more difficult because you want to prove. You don't just to quote. Of course, we can quote from the Quran, and when we have established the Quran is the word of God, it's enough. But for the people who have not reached this point, for the people who have not yet been able to understand and verify that the Quran is word of God, to quote Quran might not convince them. For Muslims, it would be enough. But for those people, first we have to establish that it's the word of God. So what we can do is also to back up our position with intellectual argument. So when I want to say honesty is good, I can bring verses of Quran, I can bring Hadith, but I should also be able to argue for this rationally. If I want to be a moral philosopher, a Muslim ethicist. So I should be able to argue for this. Or for example, when people have questioned whether moral values are relative or not, whether we have universal values that apply to all people from different cultures, different ages or not, you can discuss this based on the scripture, you can discuss this rationally. Uh, When I was thinking about a topic for my PhD, so Different things came to my mind, but I finally decided to study ethical relativism, which is the idea that whether we have universal values or we have relative values, means that from person to person or from culture to culture, values can vary. Something can be good for one group or one person, and the same thing can be bad for another person, and both of them can be true. This is relativity, yeah? So, for example, there was a time that in the United States of America, northern states and southern states had difference of opinion about slavery. Northern states were against slavery, and southern states were in favor of slavery. Of course, one practical reason for that was because they were farmers in the south, and they needed lots of no labor and manpower So they were in favor of a slavery. According to those who believe in relativity of ethics, the people who believed that a slavery was right, they were right. And the people who believed that a slavery was wrong, they were also right. Because each of them judged according to their own framework. So both of them were right. There is no single true position. There is no single true morality. There can be more than one single true morality. Of course, this is a position that we don't believe. But when I wanted to study this, I didn't study this in a department of Islamic studies or Middle Eastern studies. I decided to study this in the department of philosophy and with philosophical approach, not with descriptive ap- approach or text-based approach. So if you remove my name from my uh, thesis, you will not find this person is a Muslim or not. But whatever I have argued is based on Islamic philosophy. But because philosophy is a common language, so you can be a Muslim who accepts that. You can be a Christian. Actually, there was a, when it was published as a book, uh, actually, this is the first book which was published by the Islamic College, uh, Ethical Relativism. So when it was published, there was a review by a lecturer from Suas and said that the Catholics should welcome this book. Because this is very much like what they think. So when you use a common language like philosophy, then it would not be limited to one tradition. It can be for all human beings, because Agle is for everyone. So we should be able to present our position in a rational way so that it can be understood and welcomed by people who may not belong to our tradition, but still they have their aql, okay? So we have sam' and we have aql. Sam' is to listen to the prophet, to the revelation, to the hadith, and aql is to argue using logic. Using proper methodology, this ayah is very good about uh, why some people have gone to hell. Okay, Allah says, "Qalu, nasma'u ma kunna fi ashab sair." Had we listened. Our thought used our reason. means had we listened, or acted rationally, we used our reason, we were not put in hell. It means that the reason we are not in heaven and we are put in hell is because we didn't listen to the prophets, we didn't listen to revelation, also, we didn't use our aql. So Allah has two hujah. We didn't use any of them. But inshallah, if you use both aql and wahy, so you will be in the highest position inshallah in heaven. Inna lillahi Allah has two hujjah: aql and the prophets. And Imam qasim in the same hadith. Which says <coughs> the hadith to Hasham ibn Hakam in the beginning of Al-Kafi, he says the most perfect, the best people are those who understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with their ahl better. Those who have achieved better understanding of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So as Muslim ethicists, if we want to study Islamic ethics, we can do two things. One is to follow descriptive line of doing ethics, and that is to study what is in the text, what scholars have said in interpreting those texts, and come up with a proper understanding of Islamic position about different values, different actions, different traits of character. The second is to follow a rational, intellectual path, to argue why something is right, why something is wrong, why something is good, something is bad, and go into all the philosophical questions. So we can do one of the two. but. If you want to be a very good Muslim you know, scholar of akhlaq, I think you should do both. Because we need people who can refer to the Quran and Hadith and come up with a proper understanding of Islamic <coughs> descriptive akhlaq. But at the same time, we need people who can argue with non-Muslims to prove that our values are universal. Our values are not only for Muslims. Because you know, if you do your best and prove very nicely that Quran means this, Hadith means this, then this is good for Muslims, which is very good. But if you want also to go beyond Muslims <coughs> and share your values with other people, you have to use the language of <coughs> reason. You have to be argue and be able to argue so that you can also convince the people who are rational, but not necessarily Muslims. So inshallah, what we are going to do is, I will next week explain more uh, different types of study, especially I want to talk about uh, ethical theory and applied ethics. And then after that, we will start with Islamic ethics as a descriptive. Maybe, inshallah, after two, three semesters, then we go to philosophical ethics. But uh, maybe for the first two, three, we just focus on descriptive ethics. But inshallah, finally, we should reach that point that we talk about uh, philosophical ethics. وآخر Oh, my oh. 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 oh.